Something you may not know about me, but I have a very wonderful wife, and we were high school lovebirds. We met in high school. We met over a Suzuki Samurai, and uh, you can picture a Suzuki Samurai as being a wannabe Jeep. That was us. And uh, we dated for, for a while, and my sister said something to me. She said, if you like it, you should put a ring on it. Actually, maybe she didn't say, maybe that's Beyonce. I'm not sure where that came from. But, but it was this idea, you know, we loved each other, and, and the challenge was, hey, you should do something about this. So uh, as a young man, I went to uh, the only place I knew, K Jewelers. Every kiss begins with K, right? So I walk into K Jewelers. They're like, oh, you want a ring? And they were like, uh, you know, what's your budget? And I said, well, here's my budget. So they grabbed a Cracker Jack box, brought it out, and they pulled the ring out of the Cracker Jack box. And, and what happens when you go to a jeweler, it doesn't matter if you're looking at the Cracker Jack, bo- cr- crapper, cracker Jack box ring, or you're looking at a fancy ring. What they, what they do is they take that jewelry out. They put it on a piece, a piece of black felt, right? You've been there. Adam, you were there not long ago. They put this on this, this piece of black felt. The question is, well, why do they do that? Like, why do they take that jewelry and put it down on that little piece of black, whatever it is? Because when you take that jewelry, it doesn't matter how fancy it is or how unfancy mine was. When they put it against that backdrop, it pops. It shines. It glitters. The beauty of a diamond is best exhibited against a backdrop of stark contrast. So we know how the story goes. Uh, I spent the $25 to buy the ring. It wasn't $25. It was a little bit more than that. Uh, She said yes, and here we are. Uh, 45, 50, 60 years later, something like that, and uh, five kids, it's wonderful. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, we've been in this series on the book of Nehemiah for the past uh, several weeks, and uh, we saw that Nehemiah was given a vision by God. If you need a Bible, if you want to slip your hand up, I think we've got a couple in the back. Also, all the words we'll read will be on the screen behind me uh, this morning as well. Uh, We've been in this series on, on the book of Nehemiah, and we saw that God gave Nehemiah a specific vision. He said, I want you to do something. I want you to go and, and, and rebuild the walls. And we saw Nehemiah go. He led all the people. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem that had been torn down for 150 years. But Nehemiah didn't leave. We got done with that job, and we began to realize, we saw this last week, that, that Nehemiah's goal wasn't just to rebuild the walls. God, when he gave him the vision of rebuilding the walls, the walls were a picture of the people's relationship with God. And so Nehemiah, his goal was not just to rebuild the walls, it was to bring restoration to the people. It was to revive the people and their relationship with God. And so now that the walls are done, we're going to see Nehemiah focus on the work of the people. Last week we saw that he started with the Word of God. They had this opportunity where they called for the pastor, Ezra, and said, hey, would you read us the Bible? And they read it for six hours. They read the Bible for six hours. And as they started reading, they understood three things about the Bible. The Bible is going to tell us who God is. The Bible is going to tell us who we are. The Bible is going to tell us what God has done to make us right with him. And the people, they read the Bible, they begin to hear these things. And it leads to them wanting to do something to actually follow the Word of God. They said, you know what? We don't want to just hear it. We want to do it. And so they read about this Feast of the Booths where the people were supposed to build tents for themselves. 
and for a week we're supposed to go camping. There was a week-long camping trip that was supposed to be a reminder to the time that God provided for them while they were in the desert for those 40 years wandering. How even though they're in the desert, God provided for them, God took care of them, and that Feast of the Booze of that time in that, that, that tent was also a reminder of the future inheritance that they were going to receive into the, in the promised land. And so the people, they, they, they had two weeks to prepare. They prepare, they get their tents pitched, they sleep in a tent for a week to celebrate this. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 9. This feast is over. And now we're going to see this six-hour worship service. In fact, there's going to be three hours of preaching. Three hours of reading the Word of God. And as the people hear the Word of God, they begin to, to, to weep and mourn over their sin. Again, the Bible is going to show us who we really are. And as they read the Bible, the Bible begins to read them, and they begin to see all these areas that they have rebelled against God, and, and it confronts their pride. It confronts their, their uh, selfishness, and it shows who they really are. And this is what it's going to lead to. It's going to lead to this, this time of confession. This time of confession of being honest before God and saying, God, here's what I've done. Here's my junk. Here's my brokenness. We are sinners. And this is what we're going to see, is that as they begin to confess their sin, they, they begin to show that confession isn't just admitting the reality of who we are. Confession also involves uh, uh, confessing the reality of who God is. And as much as the Bible is going to show that sin abounds, more so the Bible shows that grace abounds even more. And yes, you'll read the Bible and you'll be convicted of sin, but even more than that, you'll be convicted of how great God is and how merciful and gracious He is. In fact, this is going to be our lesson today. Is that, well, I would, I would call gospel confession. Confession, true confession, is the reality of who we are. It shows the reality of who we are, but it also is going to show the reality of the love of God that trumps our sin time Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, we're going to go through this expositorially uh, uh, today, so I'm going to ask you if you would just pray with me before we jump in. God, we just are so thankful for your grace today. Thank you for the opportunity to be gathered with your people. And God, we can open up your word and not come to hear a pastor give an opinion, but we're here to hear your word. And God, I pray that you give us the kind of faith to respond like the Israelites, that when we hear your word, that we would be able to be real with who we are, to be humble and honest about our brokenness. But God, more than that, we would see your grace and your mercy that is available to every one of us in here today, Jesus. We pray for your spirit to rest on us now. Give us insight to your word, Jesus, in your holy and precious name. Amen. In fact, as we look at this idea of the reality of these two things, the reality of, of, of our brokenness and our sin. And the reality of God's grace, doesn't God's grace shine like that diamond? You put that diamond against that black belt, and God's grace shines so much more against uh, the reality of our sin. Nehemiah chapter 9 starts out in verse 1. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, uh, with earth on their head. This is three weeks after the word of God was first read amongst the people. And this is something that they've made a, a habit. They read the Bible daily. They're doing it in their homes. They're doing it collectively. 
the Word of God has become a priority for them. And as they approach the Word of God, again, what it does, it begins to show the reality of our sin. It shows the reality of our brokenness. And the people realizing that, it says that they were fasting. They, they, they wore sackcloth. They had earth or dust on their head. And these things were a sign of mourning. This is what the people would do in mourning. And they're mourning over their sin. This isn't an awareness just of something off in their life, of maybe something that, that isn't quite right. This was a deep sorrow because they recognized how bent they were to rebellion against God instead of faithfulness. How bent they were on taking credit for their life and the good things instead of recognizing every gift as a gift from God. So verse 2, it says, the Israelites, they separate, separated themselves from all foreigners. And I always wonder, like, why do they separate themselves from foreigners? Doesn't that kind of sound like arrogance? Like, we are God's people. We're so much better than everybody else. So we're going to separate ourselves. And it's not a matter of arrogance. It's actually a matter of dedication. This is a way of saying, God, I want to be wholly dedicated to you. I don't want anything that would distract me or divert me away. So this is where that separation comes from. It comes from a spirit of dedication about being wholly dedicated to God. So they separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Because the people stood and they confessed their sins as well as the sins of their fathers and their ancestors. This idea that you and I, we are not merely individuals. We are members of families that have shaped us, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. And see, we live in a society where sometimes we want to deny the sins of our family. We want to separate ourselves and say, well, I'm going to be so different than my parents and I'm, I'm my own person. So what often happens is because we aren't willing to deal with the junk of our family, we excuse our own sins. And we have this, instead of having this solidarity or this unity with past generations. And when there's this recognition that we are part of a family, and, and we have a shared ownership in that family, and when you see these people begin to repent for the sins of their families as well, then there's this, uh, uh, this amazing transformation that takes place. This is how you break generational sin. This is where uh, the, the, the spirit of, of confession, uh, the spirit of repentance, enables transformation not only of individuals, it enables transformation of families. Enables transformation of churches. Enables transformation of an entire city. Recognizing that we are in this together. So they confess their sin. And the question I want to I want to wrestle with is, is why is it hard to confess sin? Like, I know, this is probably not, unless you grew up in the Catholic Church. Like, confessing sin, why is that hard for us to do? I mean, anybody in here enjoy it? Anybody in here enjoy standing up and saying, hey, guess what I did this last week, guys? I blew it. No, none of us really like to do that. You begin to wonder, like, why is confessing so hard? It's probably because something, uh, something that's a reality. That we said this last week. Most of us in here, we think we're pretty awesome, don't we? Like most of us in here, we think pretty highly of ourselves. We think, man, I'm, I'm a pretty awesome person. And so because we have this high view of ourselves, we tend to rewrite history where we are the hero that deserves recognition. 
Or at the very least, we are the victim who wonders why bad things happen to good people. And so we have this, this deceit that we live within ourselves where we don't want to view ourselves as a broken person. We don't want to bru- view ourselves as someone who is bent towards rebellion. We want to view ourselves in a good light. And so we rewrite history and change things to make us look better. We want others to think we're better. And maybe we don't want to even admit to ourselves. And so we have these rose-colored glasses on. I mean, isn't this why we oftentimes don't want to ask for help? Now, isn't this why when you're driving, you don't stop and ask for directions? Because if you had to stop and ask for directions, then you'd have to admit, I don't know where I'm at. I don't know where I'm going. I mean, this is the reality. We don't want to admit that we need help. We don't want to admit that we have these issues within us. That's why uh, uh, it's great, uh, grateful for organizations like CA. Anybody ever heard of CA? It's kind of like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. CA is Pat's Anonymous. And see, just like AA, you start the, the meeting out and you say, Hi, my name is so-and-so, and you have to confess, I like that. And at the moment that you can confess that, there's help for you. There's hope for you. Right? No, there's not. Yes, there is. See, you and I, we can't experience the grace of Christ unless we live in the reality of who we are. That we are sinners in need of forgiveness. And until we can come to that point that we can confess our brokenness, we miss out on receiving the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ. That's why confession is so important to us. And as we read through the rest of this chapter, it's going to give some insight to confession. It's going to give some insight to how we can have the confidence to confess our sins. And so remember, they, they have this six-hour service. There's three hours of, of preaching the Word of God, and there's three hours that is combined between confession and worship of Christ. And what this service is going to show, what this six-hour service is going to show, that if we're going to grow in Christ, if we're going to become mature in our faith, if we're going to be serious about the Word of God, then confession isn't just us feeling crappy about ourselves. It does involve being honest with who we are. It does involve being honest about our junk and our brokenness and our rebellion. But true confession it also includes the reality of who God is. The reality of his character, the reality of his love, the reality of his compassion. And so we're going to see in the rest of this chapter, there's this long prayer, the, the longest prayer of the Old Testament. And it's going to show the reality of who we are, but just as important, if not more important, it's going to show the reality of who God is. That he is a God of mercy, and a God of grace, and a God of forgiveness. So here, uh, starts out this prayer in verse 6. And it points out to the very beginning, to Genesis, to the creation of all things. And it says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, and the earth, and all that is in it, and the seas, and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven who worships you. It points back to being God, uh, the creator. Now, I know when you start looking at this idea of creation, uh, we start ruffling some feathers. People want to argue about that. And I just want to say, uh, the work of God in creation isn't really about creation. I mean, it is. We have to say that God is the creator. But, but one of the things I think 
true is, is the Bible's not necessarily a science book. The Bible teaches science. There's science in it. But the Bible is not a book about science. The Bible is a book about God. And more so than science, what we want to see is the character of God. And when you look at the creation story, you see the character of God very clearly. You see, he is a God. Of, he is a creator. He is, is, is uh, powerful. You see his, his goodness. You see the duty that we owe to God as our creator. When we view God as creator, then there is nothing in the universe that God doesn't stand over. That God doesn't have authority. That God doesn't rightly deem as his own. So he starts from the very beginning. If we're going to understand who God is, if we're going to understand who we are, we've got to recognize he's God, we're not. He's the creator of all things. We, might, we may not know how all things work out, but we've got to recognize who the authority is. It's him and him alone. He starts from the very beginning. God is a creator. Verse 7, it says, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring, the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gergesite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. See, he's pointing now to the identity of the people of God. The identity is this, that God chose Abram. God saw him that he was faithful. And God made a covenant to Abram. God made a promise to him. And God has kept his promise because God is a promise. And this is a core of the identity for the Israelites, for the people of God, is that they didn't find God. They didn't, Abram, Abram didn't go search out, try to find the meaning of life, and all of a sudden appointed to God. No, God chose him. God sought him out. If you are here today, if you are a believer in Christ, you need to, to recognize that God chose you. It's not by chance that you're here. It's not by chance that you began to understand the gospel. It's not by chance that, that, that God called you into a relationship with him because you're so smart, because you have so much to offer. It is the grace of God that God chose you, that God drew you into a relationship, that God has plans for you, that God has a purpose for your life. This is the reality of, of what it means to be the people of God. Is God's love in choosing us, calling us to be his people. And as you think about this, you think about the Israelites, it's kind of funny for them to point back to, to that identity that God chose them. Because the reality of where they are, I mean, I mean, here they are. They're scattered across the world in slaves. They're scattered across the world. Hey, 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 they've seen God do all these miraculous things. They've seen God chosen them. And they've had all these promises from God. And now the people are scattered around the slaves. Like, like, it's kind of foolish for them to make that claim. Hey, look how special we are as the people of God. Yet their identity still comes back to being rooted that God chose them, and God is faithful to keep that promise. And that's what I want to look at today. I want to look at what gives them such confidence, that they can be enslaved because of their sin, that they can be in a bad situation and still, me, and still have the confidence that God made a promise to them. He's going to keep it. What gives them that confidence? 
What gives us that kind of confidence that we can know that God's grace is on us, even when we speak, even when we're broken, even when we pursue the wrong thing time and time and time again? Kind of like, kind of like the Packers making make the playoffs without Aaron Rodgers. Like, what gives them that confidence? In fact, you're going to see the rest of this chapter, what gives them that confidence that they can be rooted in who God is and what he has, has said about them. As we read through, we're going to read through a bunch of verses together, 9 through 37. Uh, I want you to hear this because every time you hear the word you, you're going to hear you. You did this. You did that. You, you, you. This is referring to God. You can hear all these great things that God did. You saved them. You called them. You uh, brought them out from oppression. You gave them a land. You're going to see all this greatness about God. So every time you see the word you, it's going to refer to God. And every time you see the word they or us or we, it refers to the Israelites. It refers to God's people. It refers to you and I. And we're going to see something very different about us. We're going to see a lot of positive things about God. You did this. You did all these great things. And then you're going to hear they and us and we. You're going to hear a lot of negative things. We rebelled. We turned our back. We were stiff-necked. We didn't do what we were supposed to do. And this is where the reality of what you're going to hear is you're going to hear the greatness of God time and time again. And you're going to hear the brokenness of man. You're going to see them fail to acknowledge God time and time again. And there's five things, five things that as we read through this when we get down, five things I want to point out that will give us a freedom to where we can be open and honest with who we are, that we can confess our sin to God because of these five things. In Nehemiah chapter 9, I'm going to start reading in verse 9, and we're going to read through the end of the, the, the chapter together. You can follow along in your Bible or words behind me. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed wonders and signs against Pharaoh and all his servants, and all the people of his land, for they knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them. So they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as stone in mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them by day. And by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them uh, the way in which they should go. You came down from Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and the statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You, God, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and you brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to them. But they, us, we, our fathers, acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your voice. They, us, we, refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. 
even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who, who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemy. Verse 19, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for your thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you, God, you gave them kingdoms and peoples and a lot of them to every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. The descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do to them as they would. They captured the fortified cities, a rich land, and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your goodness. Good place. Good place to be. Nevertheless, they, us, we, were disobedient, rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back, and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn back to you. And they created, they committed great blasphemy. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And at the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. You heard from heaven, and according to your great mercy, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they, us, we, did evil again before you. You abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times, God, you delivered them according to your mercy. And you warned them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they, us, we, acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned us, we turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened our neck. We would not obey. Many years, God, you bore with them and warned them uh, by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they, us, we would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, verse 31, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them. You are a gracious Merciful God. Now, therefore, O God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all your hardships seem little to you that have come upon us, upon our kings, upon our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria to this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments, your warnings that you gave them. Even in our own kingdom and amid great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. And behold, we are slaves as rich yield goes to the king 
we have set over us because of our sin. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. You see, what they did is they just recounted the history of Israel. They just recounted all the marvelous things that God had done, how God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, how God had parted the Red Sea and let the Israelites walk over on dry land. I then brought the water over the enemies to kill them. How God had, had, had led them through the wilderness by, by uh, led them through the desert with a cloud at day and a fire by night to lead them and guide them. How God provided for them manna and water and all the things they needed to survive. How God gave them the promised land. How God uh, brought the people, uh, brought the enemies out of the promised land so that God's people could live there. How, how God had sent deliverers to, to lead the people back to where they needed to be so they were no longer in oppression. You see this story play out where time and time again, God is faithful. God does so much. And time and time again, you hear about us, about we, how we turn from him, how we reject him, how we disobey Somehow in the middle of that, we are to find freedom where we can be honest with who we are before God and seek His grace. Five things I want to talk about. Five things I want you to see in this story. First thing I want you to see that God does not abandon His people. God does not abandon His people. He is always aware of the circumstances. This is repeated in that history. You see again and again, God saw their affliction. God heard their cries. I mean, verse 17, when they ran backwards towards Egypt, going back to slavery after God had redeemed them, he says in verse 17, you did not forsake them. You did not turn your back on them. Verse 27, when they're crying out and suffering, it says you heard them. You heard their cries. Time again, God is aware of the circumstances and did not abandon them in the times of hardship. So what does that mean for you and I? Regardless of the circumstance of your life right now, this is a hope that you can, can grab hold of as a people of God, that God is aware of whatever situation you find yourself in. Do you know that? Whatever situation you find yourself in today, God is aware of what is happening. Because I don't know what's going on in everybody's life in this room today. But I know there's some of us that have come in a little bit banged up. There are some of us in this room who are disappointed with how life has played out. Some of us in this room who uh, are exhausted in marriage and you're barely hanging on. Some of this room are, are desperately worried about the tra trajectory of their kids, of their kids and where they're going in life. Listen, I want you to know this. There's no tear in this room. No angst in anyone's heart that God does not rightfully go, I know what you're going through. He does. And not only does God just, just, not only does he know what you're going through, listen, he says you're not alone. I've not abandoned you. This is where Psalm 23 because I can fear no evil because God is with me. His staff and his rod, they comfort me. Listen, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I want you to hear this. God is with you. 
God has not abandoned you. You are not alone. Isn't that good to know? And you see this in the history time and time again. Second thing we see in this history is that God guides and God instructs his people. Isn't that great? God guides, instructs his people. I mean, I mean, you come to a point in your life, and you're like, man, what's next? Like, I've got these two choices in front of me. Which one do I choose? And you look at the Word of God, and no matter how much you read the Bible, it just doesn't tell you whether you should take this job or that job. And you're wondering, like, where do I go next? And again, you look at this text, you see God continually to engage His people. You see God leading and guiding, instructing His people in multiple ways. In verse 12, God gave them a cloud by day and a fire by night to lead them so they knew which way to go. Like, how many of you would love to have that in your life, like a, like a fire? Just go before you. Just follow, follow the cloud. Now, that'll take you to Seattle. I'm not sure that's what you want to do. But still, this idea, like, wouldn't it be great to have, like, something like that? Verse 13 and 14, it says, God, he, he gave us the law. He gave us the word of God to lead us. Verse 20 says, he gave us the good spirit, the Holy Spirit that helps to lead and guide us. And it just faithfully, continually pointing to this idea that God guides, God instructs, and God leads his people. You begin to say, well, but how's God going to lead me? You know, I've got all these situations in my life. How's God leading me? And the first place to look when God's leading you is right here, the word of God. Like, this is what he gave. Like, God is the creator. He gave us this, this book so we would know, like, how to live our life, to know how to find him, how to be obedient to him. And again, turn to the word of God. You say, well, man, I still got the situation in my life, like this job or that job or, you know, this situation, that situation. I don't know what to choose. And sometimes, no matter how much you read the Bible, no matter how much you know about the Bible, it just doesn't answer that question of which job you have second way that God leads and guides and instructs his people, I think, is through the community of faith, through the church, through the people of God. We talk often about the importance of having a gospel community in your life, about being in church, about having a people that you are known to, and a people that you are knowing others as well. And why is that so important? Why is it so important that we have a community of believers around us to, to help be a part of our life? The reason is because you and I, we're prone to selfishness. We're prone to have blind spots. And oftentimes we don't even know we have them because that's why they're called blind spots. And I'll be honest, like, does anybody enjoy having someone tell them their blind spots? Like, I hate it. I hate when someone comes and tells me my blind spots. And oftentimes what happens is, is when you tell me my blind spots, immediately I become aware of your blind spots upon hearing mine. Isn't that the way it works? Like, like some sort of magic pill where you say, I see something wrong in your life, and I'm like, you know what? Let me tell you all the little things I see wrong in your life. A magic pill that switches. But when we, are, when we are known to other people, and when we know others, you recognize that it allows them to speak into your life in a loving way to say, you know what, man? I see the situation you're in, and here's what I'm seeing. Because sometimes we become clouded. 
of his blindness. And the community of faith around us, people that we know and love and know us, can help speak into it and say, man, here's where I think you should be leading. Here's where I see God. God uses the church, the people of God, to, to shape and to guide us. Listen, being committed to the people of God, it's not easy. It can be hard. But listen, if you are not connected to the church, you are missing out on a gift of God true right now, of being the church. But not only do we see, not only do we see that God does not abandon his people, not only do we see that God guides and instructs his people, we also see that God provides for his people. Number three, God provides for his people. You see him providing physical need time and time again. Verse 15, God gave them manna to eat and water to drink. Verse 21, 21, God made their clothes and their shoes last 40 years. I want to know where you buy those at, right? I've got five kids, and it seems like they can't stay in there. They always have holes in their jeans. So I'd love to find out where they bought those shoes and those clothes. Again, that idea that God provides for his people. Verse 22 says, God gave them kingdoms. God gave them land. God gave them houses. Verse 23, God allowed and multiplied their offspring. Gave them abundance of kids. Now, I know sometimes what we want to say is we want to say, well, uh, you know, God, here's what I, here's what I want. Listen, God's not going to give you what you want. He will give you what you want. God's provision is not based on your perception of what you need, but on His perception. We have this tendency where we don't want what we deserve, but we do want what we don't need. That's where we've got to understand that God is a provider, and He will provide in His wisdom what we need, not necessarily what we want, or not based on our wisdom, what we need. And I know there are some times that we feel robbed by God, because God did not give us something that ultimately he never promised to give us. But God is a provider, and he provides for his needs. He gives us just what we need in just the right time. So here we see the face of God as creator. We see God choosing the Israelites, choosing them as the people of God. We see that God is present with them, that God is, is guiding them, that God is a provider. And you see this history of God being played out in the history of Israel. And then you become, number four, you, you, you become face-to-face with the reality of human brokenness, of human sinfulness. But you see, God do all these things time and time again. God leading, God guiding, God providing. But then you see human nature, where we are rebellious, where we turn our back on God. Verse 16, it says they stiffen their necks. They refused to obey. They weren't mindful of all the things that God had done in their life. All the things that God had done in their history. Despite all that God did, despite him being the creator, and the fact that God chose them, that he was with them, that he was providing for them. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient. Verses 26 to 31, it tells the sad, steady pattern that happened in the life of Israel. There was increasing sin, followed by God's discipline. When God's discipline came, there was a temporary return to God, and then it led to more rebellion, more sin, more rejection. 
And how many of us, if we were to look at our, our, our life, would say, this is our story? And then the Israelites say, look at the present situation, verses 33 and 34. They said, we have acted wickedly. And because of that wickedness, 40, verse 36, we're in the promised land. We're in the land that God had promised to them. Yet we're slaves. We're not free. We're not experiencing the bounty of what God promised because of our rebellion. As we read this chapter, I want us not to read this chapter about the history of Israel. I want us to read our life in this chapter. Think about your life. Think about the way in your story how God has guided you. As God has cared for you. How God has provided for you. Think about the moment that you profess your faith in Jesus Christ, where God chose you. Think about the history of God's working in your life. Think about how many times have we turned our back? How many times have we done dumb things, even after God has been gracious and merciful? How many times have we said, God, I see that, but I'm going to do things my own way? How many times has God blessed us, and instead of recognizing where the gift and the Creator comes from, how many times do we take credit for it? See, this story is the, the story of Israel, but it's also the story of us. Uh, we look back, we can see God's hand on our life in so many situations. So many ways that God provided for us, that God led us, that God, that, that God uh, worked in our life. So many times that we chose to do our own thing. The Israelites, they're honest with their junk. They don't sugarcoat it. They don't justify it. They don't excuse it. They don't blame it. They owned it. They owned their junk beforehand. So how could they do that like that? have that fear in me. How can I do that? It's because of this. Because it's possible because of one last thing I want you to see in this text. See this all the way through. That God is ready to forgive. Throughout the entire story, you see God continually ready to forgive. In response to the arrogance, in response to the rebellion, in response to the rejection, God is constantly ready to forgive. Verse 17 says, God, you are ready to forgive. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And verse 18 says, even after they made a golden calf and said, this is our God who saved us, that God did not forsake them. He did not abandon them. Despite all the rebellion, verse 31 says, your great mercies uh, make an end to them or forsake them, will not forsake them. God keeps his promises. God is a God of steadfast love. Numerous times you see this in the history of a couple hundred years of Israel. That no matter how many times they rebelled and turned their back, that God extended mercy, that God extended grace, that God heard their cries. Listen, we can be honest in the reality of sin in our life, of junk in our life, because we can cling to this promise. God is a God of grace, of mercy, of abounding love, of steadfast love. Think about the worst secret in your life. 
the worst thing that you don't want anyone else to know about. That thought in your heart that continues to repeat. That thing in your phone that you don't want anyone to see. What's hiding in that back closet? Listen, whatever that is, you realize that God can give you his forgiveness available to you right now if you confess it. Confess the reality of your sin. Because more than that, I want you to confess the reality of God's grace. You receive that grace and mercy today. So what do you do with this? Like, I've got this brokenness. I've got this junk in my life. What do I do? Second Corinthians, Second Chronicles chapter 7 says this. says, if my people who are called by name, my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. And will forgive their sin and heal their land. So here's our response today. That if we humble ourselves before God, if we pray and we seek his face and we turn from our sin, we can confess our sin that he will forgive it, that he will change our life, that he will change our world. This is the promise of God. If we humble ourselves, Acknowledge our brokenness and seek his face. Listen, that's a promise that he will forgive us, that he will change our life, that he will change our world. This is a promise that enables transformation of lives and of families and of communities. If we would humble ourselves and seek his face. This morning I thought an appropriate way for us to respond would be to respond through Communion. Communion is something that Jesus instituted on the night that he was betrayed. He took the, the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you on the cross. And then he took the cup with the juice. He said, this is the new covenant between God and people. Through the shedding of Jesus' blood for the forgiveness of sin. Paul says, he says, this uh, communion is an act of worship, a way to remember Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for you and I. Is there any greater picture of the reality of our sin, the reality of God's grace, than picturing what Jesus did for us on the cross? That despite all the things that we've done but to nail him there, he still chose to go pay the penalty for your sin, to pay the penalty for my sin. Is there any greater picture of this idea of confessing, of confessing how broken we are, but confessing that his love is still greater? Paul says that before you partake of communion, he instructs us to examine our lives and to confess any sin we have before God. I want to give us that opportunity today. To take some time, each of us, individually, to humble ourselves. Stop sugarcoating it. And stop making excuses. And stop blaming other people. But actually to, to own our sin. To own our brokenness. To seek God's faith. To say, God, I'm turning from my wicked ways. I'm turning towards you. And 
that, if you have that opportunity to, to deal with the reality of who you are, I'm going to invite you to come forward and partake of the elements on either side of me. That's the picture that no matter what sin is going on in your life, no matter what you've been hiding, God's grace is still greater. God's mercy is still greater. His forgiveness is still there. If you're new to Restoration Church, we believe communion is meant for believers in Christ. If you're a Christian, we invite you to participate. If you are not a Christian, I ask you today, why not place your faith in Jesus as your Savior? Why not invite Him into your life? As a church, uh, we want you to take time individually to spend some time between you and the Lord before you come forward. So we don't take the elements together. We want you to do it individually when you're ready. And when you're done, after you have the chance to, to pray before God, to confess your sin and come forward and partake of communion, I'm going to ask you just to, to get after that worship. To get after that opportunity that we can stand up and we can praise Jesus for who He is and for what He's done. And we can praise Him for the grace and forgiveness that every one of us can walk in.